Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 19. Being the best version of yourself wherever you're at in your current situation. People will notice, people will remember, because once again, we're in the athletic world. Coaches will move on, but if you make an impression, they're going to remember that. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Jay Agabal, the Associate Athletic Director for Sport Performance at Santa Clara University. Jay, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Man, we connect... uh, quite a bit you reach out from time to time when you're uh trying to make the most of your staff there at Santa Clara I've learned a lot about your program and excited to dig into your background today want to kick things off tell us about your role at Santa Clara that associate AD job title is really elevated for this profession and how'd you uh how'd you get into that role so getting into the role was <laughs> that was actually an interesting one I first heard about the role on Instagram. Um, I was, uh, let's see, it was the fall of 2020 um, in November, flying to a funeral, you know, sitting in Salt Lake, browsing uh, through IG. And uh, I saw that there was a job posting for an associate AD position. And you don't see those every day. So that automatically piqued my interest. And I I started texting and calling around to see if this was actually a thing. Um, Come to find out the job was wide open. People were interviewing for it got my name in the mix and one thing led to the other. I currently in my role, the big synopsis of it is that I oversee the sports performance for all of our student athletes here. Some 450 plus student athletes. We do not have football. So our two biggest sports uh, considered our eight tier are men's basketball and women's soccer, women's soccer, having been one of the most successful programs in our school's history, uh, won the national title, I think in 2021, and then made it back to the final four perennial contenders in the uh, NCAA tournament. I basically, in my role, I have to oversee and put together a staff to service the needs of all of our student athletes, and then really coordinate with our senior associate AD of health, wellness, and performance, working with athletic trainers, sports medicine, other departments around campus, operations, you name it, just really trying to as our AD says, give our students the best holistic student athletic experience available to them. And so the biggest thing for me has been building the staff since I got here. Um, I think that that was my first big challenge. And now that we are what I would consider fully staffed, now it's trying to figure out how we can continue to build and make additions as we go along the way. So you are right in Silicon Valley. That is a high rent district. That's an expensive part of the country and strength and conditioning salaries haven't always been on that level. Is that a challenge for you in a hiring position to find strength coaches to come out there and be part of your program? How have you dealt with that? I think historically it would have been a challenge. Uh, When I first got here, as associate AD, the staff consisted of a director of sports performance, an assistant director, and two part-time positions. Uh, what we've been able to do as 
there have been changes to the staff is to elevate those positions. And so my staff now consists of two assistant AD positions. I have Brianna Cans working with women's soccer and Allison Pappenfuss working with men's basketball. Those two positions were elevated from assistant director and director to both assistant AD titles. Uh, with that comes obviously the monetary increase for compensation. Then we were able to bring in and still maintain a director of sports performance, elevated the pay there as well. And then really Santa Clara has helped out with the assistant director. That is our lowest paid position. And the university has stuck to the rules that have come out. And according to our university, the lowest paid you can be for a full-time coach is 62,000. Now, granted, that is not a lot for Silicon Valley, but in looking at some of our competitors in the area, um, I've seen coaches getting paid high 30s, low 40s, mid 50s. And, and these are people that have been coaching even longer. Um, you know, for so for me, it's really about trying to look at the comparables once again in our area, but then also trying to elevate financially these positions. So our two assistant ADs, granted, once again, in the big scheme of things, they are not making a ton of money. They're making six figures, but they're making six figures in Silicon Valley. So that is... I'd argue a survivable um, salary. And the big thing with that for me is that in the long run, when they start going to other positions, one, they have the title and they have a salary benchmark that they are going to be able to use as they negotiate or try to progress in their career. Um, the biggest thing for me is trying to take care of everyone on our staff. Um, obviously we can't all pay them the same amount, but doing the best we can and really helping having the support of our administration, um, you know, when I said I looked around at some of our other competitors in the area, I was actually just talking about it the other day. Their head Olympic strength coach, uh, I believe, has an assistant AD title, is making north of 150. And when I look through the roster of their staff, the next highest paid person is making 62. And to me, that's a shame. And I'm not putting that on the head strength coach, but I'm putting that on the, the administration, the organization that how is there such a salary disparity between your staff members? And to me, that's that's kind of where the challenges lie. And I think we've done a good job. Uh, the, assist, the athletic director, Renee Baumgartner, has been very supportive of what we're doing here and trying to build our program up. We're very fortunate that she had extensive experience at Oregon and so, you know, saw how they built up and valued sports performance and she worked closely with Jimmy Radcliffe when she was actually a sports coach. So she sees the value in sports performance and mental health, you know, our, our sports psychologist and athletic trainer, she sees the value in everything that we do for the student athlete experience. So she's been very supportive in getting us the, the funding for these positions. You clearly pay attention to the environment you're in just based on how you answered that question. And it's, it is unique in that. Uh, I know when we've talked about this, this is a, uh, this is something that comes up. Salary comes up a lot about around this profession. We're always talking about how we can better ourselves. You do see different job titles. You talked about that elevated job title status, allowing for higher pay, uh, in a part of the country where it's needed. Uh, I think we all know that's a that's a huge gap. One thing that jumped out when you were talking about Santa Clara that it is a powerhouse in women's soccer. 
how is that different from a culture and environment you have experienced working in, in the NFL and a lot of college programs thrive on football. And this is a more, uh, broad athletic experience coming from your department at Santa Clara. Yeah, I think it's, it's been unique. I think, you know, just historically speaking, and, you know, maybe some other people in the profession can prove me wrong, but, you know, when football is at the school, they are realistically the alpha. That's where the money goes. That's where the money comes from. And so they have, for lack of a better term, free reign, uh, or they get preferential treatment. Here, it, it's it's pretty cool that the best team on campus is a women's sport. Uh, this has historically been the best team. Jerry Smith, who's been here, I believe, for 35-plus years, the head coach, has been to the tournament, I think, 30-plus times, uh, you know, Sweet 16, multiple. Like, he's just very successful and has built a great culture. And because – he sees the value of all the other teams supporting his sport, bringing out the crowds, uh, you know, the student athletes, the the professors, the students, you name it, bringing everybody out. He also really does make a concerted effort to support all the other programs on campus. And I think that's been a really, for me, a really good lesson to collaborate and work with others. Um at you know in the university setting i mean for me i'm not just working with the athletic department now i am serving on the staff senate as a member for an interim period i i don't think i could see myself doing this uh full time but working with others on campus and that's something i learned from him just seeing how he's worked with everybody else to truly elevate the experience for everyone yeah that's uh i think that's really interesting when you see we talk about these elevated roles, strength coaches moving into AD type positions. How does that integrate with the rest of the university? I went to a D3 liberal arts institution. And so I think that mentality comes through at those types of schools uh, more often than maybe at the division one level, but speaking to the value of strength coaches and leadership roles, there's a whole university out there, Ari, other professionals you can connect with that can spread positive light on your program. And so I think it does speak volumes. And uh, I do think it's really cool diving into the women's soccer versus football comparison, obviously a huge culture difference, but it really does shape that university. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit more. I see you are a veteran of the Navy uh, and you're from Guam and that led you down a path towards strength and conditioning. Tell us that story. Huh. So uh, I first moved to the U.S. in 97. I was in high school. Um, after September 11th, I, I believe I was a freshman in college at the time. I decided that I wanted to serve our great country. And I signed up for the U.S. Navy. Um, when I joined and went to boot camp, I weighed 122 pounds dripping wet. Um, over the course of my five-year career, really, when I first went on uh, deployment, that's where I got into strength and conditioning, lifting, you know, doing the meathead things when you're on deployment and don't have a lot of time, or sorry, I mean, don't have a lot of other things to do, but you have a lot of time. So training, lifting weights, going down that rabbit hole and put on size, uh, you know, felt the value in training, and when I got out, I went back to school at first. I 
thought I wanted to become a sports agent. I don't know why, but I started down the sports management route, realized that that just wasn't for me. Moved over to the kinesiology department and actually started out as an athletic training student. During that time, I had to take a weightlifting class or strength and conditioning class under David Lang, um, rest in peace. He used to be the director of strength and conditioning at Washington State University and fell in love with the weight room, started volunteering there, was able to work with a football team, volleyball, baseball, you name it, typical intern duties, and just went down that rabbit hole. From there, I progressed uh, to try to find a GA position, but the reality, and, and I think a lot of other young strength coaches are finding this challenging uh, in this day and age as well, is there aren't a whole lot of graduate assistant positions for the number of applicants out there. So my very first year, I had no opportunities and actually stayed at WSU as a paid intern. Uh, the following year, I was able to kind of move on in my career and went to Illinois State under Jim Lathrop, interned there. And that's kind of how I started getting my career going. Oh, that's cool. I think it's interesting. We hear a lot about tactical strength and conditioning on this uh, podcast when when we're talking to folks working in the military or in public safety. And occasionally we do run into coaches that are working in sport that that served. Uh, do you have any insight or thought on things you just wish were a little bit better on the strength and conditioning side when you served? And maybe we're already making that headway today, but uh, just to just to go back on your experience, you know, where do you, where could you have seen benefit from strength and conditioning in the military? Well, I think the education piece is the biggest part uh, in talking to tactical strength coaches these days. I mean, just the vast knowledge that they bring to the table and are able to present to our service members, I think is where the value lies. You know, I mentioned starting to train while I was in the military. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, you bench, you squat, you do, you pull some program off of YouTube, that's a reality. Or you listen to an older, more experienced uh, sailor in my case, but there was no real education. And so I think these days, having seen the quality of the programming and the quality of the coaches that are available to our service members, that's what was missing. Uh, I think that as the field continues to progress, I think that will definitely help um, elevate the service members experience and, and lower those injury rates that are so prevalent. So want to get into programming and training a little bit and things you're seeing in the field. What are some of the current trends and topics that you're paying attention to that you think other coaches should, uh, should dial in and, uh, and, and learn a little bit more? Well, that's a great question. I think there is a lot going on in the profession. Um, a lot of different things as far as knowledge, availability, um, you know, a ton of technology. I think as a young strength coach, I would encourage a young strength coach to really figure out what piques their interest and then go down that rabbit hole and kind of hone in on those things. Yes, I, I definitely believe in having a generalized understanding of everything that's out there, but find something that really draws and hits on your passion and and helps you focus in on that. Because I think if you're really passionate about it or it's something really piques your interest, you're going to be more willing to learn and reach out to people and connect with people that share that same passion and interest. And, you know, some may say that that might pigeonhole you. But for me, it's not that. I think it 
helps connect you with other people that are really like-minded in that specific area, you can still be a generalist and you know expand on other things. But if you can find something that you're really passionate about, I think that helps elevate you as a coach as well and can help elevate those that are also passionate about that particular subject. Yeah, I think the field in general, especially when you're implementing strength and conditioning across so many programs, you can't necessarily focus on one training style or or coaching style. You have a lot of different variables at play and being able to tap into all those, but how you acquire those skills over time and how you become a true generalist is pursuing your interests and pursuing your passions. And through that, like you said, connecting with the people that that really engage you and invigorate you towards learning more. I love that. You know, I think what you, you know, how you answered that, that's, that's such a growth mentality of in great advice for our young coaches. We have a lot of young coaches listening in. I have a couple interns that, that tune into these podcasts that are current undergrad students. What advice do you have for them about pursuing next steps, first internships, GA positions, uh, making a good first impression. Be the best where you're at. I know it sounds corny, but if you approach every day and, you know, at whatever you're at, you're undergrad, you're currently an intern, you're GA, whatever it is. I think the one thing I learned early on was not to keep looking to that next step is, you know, my biggest thing was wherever I was at, I was going to be the best I could be. That didn't mean I was the best GA or best intern or whatever. It was just the best version of myself. Um, and so I think that would be my biggest piece of advice is that if you you invest the time and energy into being the best version of yourself in a given location, I'd like to think, and maybe this is wrong, but people will notice. And when people notice these things, they help expand your network and put your name in the mix for different things. Um you know, while you're also going through that, I think it's also valuable to work on genuinely expanding your network, uh, developing relationships with peers in the field, other interns from other schools, uh, GAs. Maybe there are GAs that are currently at your school while you're an intern. Talk to them about their experiences and get to know them as individuals and then see if they'll connect you with other individuals at other schools. I think that's the biggest thing. When I first came to Santa Clara was to help my staff try to expand their network. And for me, the value of network is tremendous. It's not just about jobs, but it's about knowledge. I mean, just yesterday I was texting with Dr. Brian Mann about BBT and doing an in-service with my staff. And I met him by reaching out when I was an intern with the Rams, I reached out to the University of Missouri and their coaches, and they introduced me to him. And that's how we expanded that network. And so I think the biggest thing is, you know, I'll hit it again, is just being the best version of yourself wherever you're at in your current situation. People will notice, people will remember, because once again, we're in the athletic world, coaches will move on. But if you make an impression, they're going to remember that. Uh, my my first job after I got fired by the LA Rams was with the Toronto Argonauts. My name was recommended by a gentleman who was our D-line coach with the Rams. 
he had coached with the head coach, Mark Tressman, when they were with the Raiders together. And he knew the GM early in his career. And so that is how I got in the mix for that job. And he told them what he thought about me and what I'd be able to do for them. And so I never talked to him about helping advance my career or anything like that. He just saw what I did on a day-to-day basis and he believed in it. Yeah, that's awesome. Making those connections. Uh, I think back to grad school and people that were students at the time, fellow GAs, fellow young coaches, we all had big hopes and dreams and, and we still stay in touch and everybody who we talked to, you know, we were talking to, they're still in the field today. You know, some are professors, some are coaches, some are in pro sports, some are in youth sports. And uh, I think one thing, one thing I've learned is that, you know, what you're planning when you're a student, when you're an undergrad, when you're a grad student, it's, it's not always the same exact path that you end up on. Uh, I really thought it was cool going into your bio and you've been all over the world. You've uh, obviously with the Navy, you know, growing, growing up in Guam, coming to the U S joining the military and uh, working in the CFL, NFL, private sector, and now college. Is that something that you, you always sort of took that generalist approach or did you have one destination in mind when you looked at strength and conditioning? That's a great question. The, <laughs> when I started out as an intern at Washington State University, my goal is my, at the time, uh, this was whatever, 2007, 8, 9, and 10. My goal was to come back and become the head strength and conditioning coach for football at WSU one day. And the reality is, that is no longer even in my in my mind. That's not even something I desire. Um, I was fortunate enough after grad school to become an intern with the Rams uh, in St. Louis at the time and would go on to spend four more years or four years with them total. And during that time, my mindset shift. I was like, all right, football, professional football. This is all I want to do. I love it. I think I'm pretty good at it. Cool, I get fired. Uh, you know that that year, <laughs> I decided to go on a, uh, I guess, continuing education uh, journey. I actually was still under contract with the Rams, so I was getting paid and blessed to be in that financial situation. I went from California to Colorado, did a couple of visits there. Then I went on a longer trip and went to Texas Tech, LSU, Alabama, the Dolphins. Worked my way all the way up the coast. Washington, D.C., Philly, New York, visiting college coaches, football strength coaches, Olympic, you name it. And at that time, I still thought that, you know what, football is where I want to be and it's where I should be. And so when the opportunity for the CFL came about, I thought it was great. Took it, ran with that for two years. At the time, still football, but then kind of just got jaded with it. You know, I was away from my wife for six months at a time. Uh, you know, full disclosure, that led to some difficulties in our marriage because the reality, you're away for a long period of time. It gets challenging. Um, came home, went into the private sector, still working with football. High school all the way to pros. You know, I'd have a lot of the guys from the ramps come over and train. Would still have that. Had some highly talented high school guys. It's pretty cool now. They're, they're in college. I get to watch them play college football. Got to work with those guys. 
when this job came open, it, it, I had actually, I'll backtrack a little bit in the fall of 20, 2020, I decided that if I was going to continue in my career, I needed to expand my options. And that was really because in talking to other coaches, a lot of the coaches we've seen, or at least older generation to me, not a ton of them have retired as strength coaches. You know, you hear of coaches going back to high school administration, um, going into medical sales, whatever it may be. There's just, at the time, there weren't a ton of coaches retiring in within the profession. So I decided to work on getting my MBA. And then when I saw this job open up, I was reinvigorated and excited to explore a different opportunity. Now, don't get me wrong. I still coach. I'm still on the floor, but I am slowly transitioning into a full-time administrative role at some point in my career. Um, I still work with baseball and volleyball and then men's golf, which comes in as well. But having my MBA, working with an AD that really empowers her staff and her leaders, and then working with others in the universe, university setting, it's kind of changed my goals. And, and now I've shifted my goals to perhaps becoming an executive member of an administrative uh, athletic department or becoming an AD one day. And so those are the things that now, as I progress in my career, I'm trying to take those steps. So I got the MBA out of the way. Now, do I need to get my doctorates or what do I need to do to align myself with this type of career progression where I can see myself as an administrator finishing off the rest of my career? That really connects well with what we were talking about before of leading your department, that elevated associate AD role. I think it's something that you know, some coaches listening in might think it sounds crazy to say, hey, I, I don't want to be coaching on the floor forever. I think we've all kind of been there where that was the be all and end all. And we looked at that head strength and conditioning coach role is exactly what we wanted. Uh, I love that story, how you wanted to be the head coach and uh, head strength coach at your school. And now that goal is nowhere in sight. And I think the takeaway there is that goals do change. I know you're in the middle of this process now, but what skills and what knowledge do you acquire now along this leadership path that maybe differentiates from what you were taught becoming a strength coach? I think really honing in on the communication piece it has been the biggest part for me. Uh, communicating, learning to communicate within the athletic department and then expanding that to the university setting and then as well speaking with the boosters and those that fund and support our programs uh, being exposed to that a lot more is kind of what's come with the territory and that has been kind of like my focus uh you know I, I went down the rabbit hole and and this is kind of roundabout way of telling the story but went down the rabbit hole of learning how to play golf um, our ad was a golf coach loves golf uh, my boss uh, has been golfing for a couple of years. And last June, I started going down the rabbit hole and started golfing. Well, I got pretty addicted. The AD finds out and says, if it's in your means, you should join a country club. And, you know, after a while, decided to do that, pursued that. And the reason she told me, she said, you will not regret it because of the people you meet and the network you make outside of the athletic department. 
that will expand your abilities, your skill set, and your opportunities for life. And she's not wrong at all. I mean, in in the you know in the first couple of months, you know, going out playing different tournaments, uh, meet so many different people. And, and the reason I kind of went down this rabbit hole and to tell this story is that last Saturday I was at a golf tournament, going to the member lounge afterwards. We're hanging out. I've seen this guy around. We've never really introduced ourselves to each other. We just start talking. Come to find out he's been the lead counsel for the University of California system. That means all the UC schools. And we went down the rabbit hole of talking about lawsuits, uh, NCAA regulations that have come about, uh, the different lawsuits he's had to deal with, you know, with strength and conditioning, sports performance in particular, athlete death or whatever it may be and so we've expanded this and started going down that rabbit hole and then he introduced me to another lawmaker so i could understand a different aspect of it so yeah as a associate ad i'm not in the room hearing all these conversations but now i'm being exposed to the thought process of individuals that are in those room and the c-suite level executives that help push um you know, regulations forward or help make these different decisions. And I think to me, that's been the the value is just learning to communicate with a much wider range of people from different walks of life. Expanding your network. I think it's a theme. It, the theme comes through again and again in this episode from strength and conditioning knowledge experts, subject matter experts in the field to People you meet out on the golf course. Uh, it's funny. I I worked with a coach years ago who would always joke that big business deals happen on the golf course and tried to learn golf. And I don't think it was his game, but he uh, he definitely uh, always tells that story of you got to find your own path to to make these connections. But that is really uh, that is really cool. I think that's uh, that's actually really interesting from how it connects to the NCAA and some of the things that we're talking about here at the NSCA on the collegiate coaching advocacy side. I'm definitely going to have to pick your brain on that. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's, it's something that it's not for everyone. That's the reality. But if that's something that is in your wheelhouse or you desire, then yeah, I definitely suggest, you know, looking at expanding networks in, in different ways and it can start small like you know on your campus working with you know one of the first things we did when we came to campus and uh, we brought uh, Allison Papenfuss and Brie Kanz on board as our assistant ADs I have two women in my top roles and so I thought it was just natural to connect with a women's group on campus that's trying to empower young women to be comfortable in the weight room and train and so we've been able to host multiple events in our weight room in conjunction with this group and just reach out and expand our network within the university setting and get more eyes on what we're doing and educate more people about what we're doing so we get even more support. Jay, man, a lot of nuggets in this episode. Really appreciate you being with us. What's the best way for people listening in to reach out and connect with you? I think the best way to get a hold of me um, is Instagram or email. I'll give you the Instagram because uh, that's a lot of people reach out that way. It's just the letter J period, A-G-G-A-B-A-O. Uh, and then if you want to get a hold of me on email, 
It'll be J-A-G-G-A-B-A-O at S-C-U dot E-D-U. We will add those to the show notes. Jay Agabow, Santa Clara University. Thanks for being with us. To everyone listening in, we appreciate you. And we also appreciate Soren X Exercise Equipment for their support on this podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We value you as a listener, just as we value your input as a member of the NSCA community. To take action and get involved, check out volunteer leadership opportunities under membership at NSCA.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.